Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Mercy Hill. Before you jump into the, before we jump into the scriptures together, I want to give you a quick update. Many of you know that we have been seeking a larger space in order to gather, especially a larger space for our kids. And you know that we have been in talks with the new owner of Trinity Methodist Church. It's the old historic sanctuary there on Evergreen in between Poplar and North Parkway. Um, the owner's name is Carl, and um, I have another meeting with him tomorrow. And uh, I am very excited about the opportunity that it seems like that the Lord has given us. Um, he has just given us great favor with this particular individual, and I don't have any way of explaining it. Um, this individual is spending tens of thousands of dollars on this particular facility and sees himself as more of a caregiver, and he wants to be a blessing to a church. And we are working from now, hopefully by the end of the month, that we will have a lease finalized. We've been looking at audio and video and pew arrangements and lots of details. So um, the update is we ask that you would continue to pray throughout this month that we would be able to finalize a lease. And the details of that lease will determine when we would transition and move locations. The earliest would be the beginning of October. The latest would be further into November. And so the details of the lease will determine that. But we just ask that you would continue to pray along with us. We're getting quotes together for audio and video gear, um, along with updated children's equipment, um, signage, and then some furniture and fixtures. So there's seven or eight classrooms below the sanctuary that we would have throughout the week that would stay set up for kids' space. Um, we're hoping to take one wall down in order to create a training room and a youth room. Um, and so we're getting those quotes together, and we would come back in September um, with a dollar amount that we would hope to raise some funds in order to go towards that equipment. So um, we want to mention that to you now and ask you just to continue praying with us. Um, we're excited. We have absolutely no explanation um, as to how we were able to move toward this relationship outside of just the favor of God. And so we're thankful for that. Don't feel, we don't feel a lot of pressure in this because we feel like the Lord has started it. And so we're going to leave it in His hands. And um, we're thankful for the way that He's been guiding us along the way. So we'll be careful to, to keep you updated over the next couple of weeks. All right. If you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapters 22 and 23. Um, as you know, we pushed pause on a series uh, about the life of David. We pushed pause on that series before the summer, and then all throughout the summer, we entitled it a Summer of Grace, and we looked at passages on grace, and now we want to go back to this series on the life of David, and as you know, we like to preach through books of the Bible. With David's life, we're going to take it instead of little tiny snippets, we're going to take it more as chapters at a time so that we're not in First and Second Samuel for the next seven years um, because you could easily do that. But up until this point, we've seen David and we've seen David the shepherd. We've seen, just to remind you, we've seen David the giant slayer. We saw David who was an amazing friend to Jonathan 
And now we pick up in the story. And the last time we left David, he was overwhelmed by fear. And he had fled to the enemy for help and for comfort because he was escaping King Saul. And in today's text, David continues on that same journey of fear, fleeing from Saul in the wilderness, running for his life. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a place that you would describe as the wilderness. Whether it was struggles that you were facing um, in your circumstances where things just seemed to come unraveled at work or in your marriage or maybe in parenting with your kids or maybe just the fact that you're growing older. Like, as we grow older, life just begins to catch up with our bodies. And the truth of the matter is that we will all experience struggle. And in this passage of Scripture, let's first, I want to be the first to admit, I read this passage and I thought, oh man, here we go again. We're talking about suffering and struggle. Like, who wants to hear about suffering and struggle all the time? We've just talked about that the last couple of weeks. One of the interesting things about David's life is from the time that he was anointed king, you get about 20 chapters that are all suffering and struggle. And then he begins to reign as king and you get about 20 chapters of him reigning. Now keep in mind, when we read David, we're seeing a foreshadowing of Jesus. And so there's a lot that we can learn about Jesus from David because Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better king. And so there's some things that if they're in David's life, we should assume they'll probably be in ours as well if we're following Jesus faithfully. And here's what David helps us with. He helps us to develop a theology for struggling. David helps us to develop a theology for struggle. And here's why that's so important for Christians in America. One of the dangers for Christians in the West is that we don't have a context for locating God when we find ourselves in the wilderness. Let me say that again. We have no context for how to locate God when we find ourselves in the wilderness. We're part of churches where... For the most part, everything is nice and neat and seemingly successful. They start on time with clean transitions and helpful sermons. And if we don't find what we're looking for, we can simply move across town to a church that has what we need. And we don't have much of a context for struggle oftentimes when it comes to our church life. I... uh, get on the BBC World News occasionally because I like to see what's happening outside of just America. And I was on their homepage this last week and I saw an article that was entitled A Church with Rock Concerts and 2 Million Instagram Followers. And it just caught my attention, you know? And so I clicked on the article and um, I don't in no way, let me, hear me say this because some of you aren't going to hear it. In no way do I mean anything demeaning toward Hillsong Church. Because we sing some of Hillsong's songs, and I like a lot of their music. Okay? In no way do I mean anything demeaning toward Hillsong. But this was the picture, and I think I have it for you. This was the picture that was on the page uh, and that was on the article. And it was um, a CGI image of Jesus Christ projected at, the, at like a huge rock concert. And it, it just kind of 
throughout the article define, like if you could define the perfect rock concert and followers of a band, like these people that are a part of, that love Hillsong and go to their concerts, like they're, you know, they know every word and they're singing hands raised at every moment. Like they're, they're, they're amazing followers of this band and hopefully more than just a band, right? But as I saw this CGI image, I felt this tension within my heart because I think that there is a danger in that we make Christ so cool that we're able to see the cross and that we're no longer repelled by it. Because when Christ becomes that cool, and I'm not saying Hillsong is making him that, but I think it's a danger that in our day and time, where everything happens on time at church and it's super cool and there's smoke machines and all the transitions work and technology just enables us to put on amazing shows. If that's our primary image of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's so easy for me to look at that image and for my only thought to be, oh my, look what he did for us. And if I'm the star of the show, then that's what I'm thinking. And I'm going to show up every Sunday and I'm going to get my dose of go get him and look what he did for me. But listen, folks, if Jesus is the star of the show, then I'm looking at that CGI image and I'm going, I don't know if I can look at that. Look at what my sins did to him. If Jesus is the star of the show. I think we have to be very careful that we understand and that we can appreciate and develop a theology for struggle. Where do we learn to locate God when life isn't nice and neat and successful and when our expectations aren't starting on time with clean transitions? When even Scripture seems unhelpful to us and there's no way to find God, how do we locate God when we find ourselves in the wilderness? Because the truth of the matter is, you will find yourself in the wilderness. It's not a question of if, but when. Life catches up with us. Struggle and suffering are inevitable, especially if you are a Christian. One of the ways we know that Jesus was God is because he was willing to go through the wilderness for us and to suffer in our place. In our text today, we're going to see David foreshadow Christ's suffering. And we're going to see this valuable lesson. God meets us even in the wilderness. God meets us even in the wilderness. We're going to see this in David's life. Now, don't worry, I've timed the message. The first point is long, the second point is medium, and the third point is very short. So don't panic when I get through the first point and you're looking at your watch and you're going, oh my goodness, how we potluck, I know, it awaits us. We will get there quickly. So look with me, chapter 22 at verses 1 and 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers in all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. 
And there were with him about 400 men. David has seemed to hit rock bottom in his life. He has lost his job, his wife, his home, his closest friend, his counselor, his self-respect. Praise Jesus he didn't lose his dog because we would be singing the Psalms to a country tune. He's lost everything. But if you look at David's life, when we last saw him, he is dribbling saliva down his beard. He has his sword and he's scratching up the gates uh, of the enemy because he knew that the Philistines had recognized him. So he began to fake insanity and he slips away out of Gath, out of, uh, out of the giant Goliath's hometown and he is now on the run and he's escaped to the cave of Agilom. And this seems to be one of the lowest points in David's life. He writes about it in Psalm 142. You can go back and you can look at Psalm 142 later. And what you'll discover, I mean, think for a moment what it must be like. Saul, the king who, whom you have served, and everyone that is in Saul's authority are after you. And you are hiding in a dark, damp cave, all alone, in despair. In Psalm 142, uh, David details this and he talks of there being no security and no food and the fact that he's lonely and that he is despairing for his life. And in this, we learn the first lesson of the wilderness. The first lesson of the wilderness is this. God has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned us. Listen to how David writes later in Psalm 142, in verses 5, 6, and 7, in which he declares, <clears throat> I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David realized that even though he was at a point in his life where everything looked desperate, he realized that God had not abandoned him. Even at the lowest point of his life, he found hope in God. He turned to God as his refuge and as his strength. And look at how God provides for him. At risk of their own lives, his family hears of his distress and join him. Now keep in mind, this is the family that previously had forgotten that David even existed. Remember his father Jesse? When Samuel came to anoint David as king, Samuel had to ask him again, is this all of your sons? And Jesse had forgotten one of his kids. Have you ever left one of your kids somewhere? Don't raise your hands. We've all done it. Um, and D Jesse forgot, oh, I do have another kid. He's out with the sheep. This is the family that shows up. These are the brothers that when David shows up to slay Goliath, they say, why are you here? Have you just come to shame us? Now this family have done a complete 180 and they've come in order to support David, but not only his family, there's also this this army, this is, this is who shows up. I want you to pay attention to this. I think this is an important detail. 
everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul. Okay, so put yourself in David's shoes. He's really lonely. He's in this dark place of despair. He's really distressed. He's probably depressed. And who shows up? His family. That's who you want to be with. People who are closest to you. And who else shows up? Everyone who is in distress. Literally, people who are under pressure, who are under stress. Everybody who has an anxiety disorder comes out to hang with David. Okay? Uh, Everyone who's in debt. These are people who, they became so in debt that they had multiple creditors that they realized, I'm never going to live my own life. I can either take a risk and go with David, or I can stay here. So all these people that have made bad decisions, they're, they're in debt. And everyone who's bitter in soul, everyone who's been wronged or mistreated, can I be honest when I read this? Y'all are going to hate me. So that sounds like a church plant. That sounds like everybody who's like, well, this other place didn't work out. Um, I don't like what they did there. Um, Well, I mean, these people are just a mess. I mean, that's who shows up in the beginning, right? None of y'all were here in the beginning. Oh, wait, a few of you were. Well, hey, if the shoe fits. Um, No, I'm coming back to that. Hang on, hang on. I'm not not insulting anyone because I think there's something we can learn here. Because I was here in the beginning too. Um, Saul had overtaxed these people and mistreated and misled these people for so long in his state of madness and depression that they were, these people, they were hurting. They were looking for different leadership. They were looking for a new commander in chief, if you will. And so pick up in verses three through five. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. David is kind of like the first Robin Hood is how I, I think of him as I read this. He's living let's be honest, with a band of misfits and rebels that doesn't stop there. A band of misfits and rebels who were slowly trained to be the mighty fighting men that we will see later in this story. God is with us even in the wilderness. And He has plans for us if we remain faithful to His calling, trusting that there's purpose even in our pain. Don't miss the fact that, de- that God will lead David to train up these misfits, these anxiety-ridden, weak and feeble, bitter-hearted men to become his mighty fighting men with incredible courage and authority. And in the same way, Jesus, the greater David, called 12 very average blue-collar fishermen to become mighty in power and authority through the presence of the Holy Spirit as they submitted their lives. And so I think there's great encouragement for each of us as we see that God desires to train us up and to use us and to build us up. 
Look as the story continues in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul, a very poor leader at this point in his life, he attempts to shame his men. He first uses bribery, and when that doesn't work, he shifts to guilt. Some of you have bosses like this. Finally, he paints David as one who is seeking to overthrow his reign by force. Poor leaders are manipulative and make leadership all about themselves. And that's a warning to each of us. Because we're all leaders in different ways. Leaders of our children or or leaders of someone at work. Or there's always people who are watching us. And there's a great danger that we would make leadership about ourselves. When we begin to feel sorry for ourselves, it should be a warning sign. So we see this in Saul's life. Poor leaders are manipulative and make leadership about themselves. Saul's turned away from the Lord. And here's the saddest part about it. When leaders make leadership all about themselves and turn away from the Lord, they oftentimes don't even recognize it. I want to summarize the rest of chapter 22 for you because it is a sordid affair. If it were a movie, it would be a rated R horror film. Uh, the main villain is a Gentile named Doeg the Edomite. And he, if you remember Doeg, his name should sound familiar from months ago. Because when David went to Nob, when he escaped from Saul, and he's running and he seeks out the priest at Nob, at the place of worship. And you remember, he takes the bread of the presence. And he takes Goliath's sword that had been kept there. Well, there was someone else who was there who saw him. And it was this villain Doeg the Edomite. And he now steps forward into Saul's inner circle. And he calls out the priest who he says and claims that Abiathar aided and abetted David. He said, I was there. I saw it. And so Saul summons, I'm sorry, the priest, his name was Ahimelech. Abiathar was his son. There's a lot of strange names and they all happen to start with A in this passage. So, So Saul summons Ahimelech and all of his household with him. Typically, that's either a really good thing or a really bad thing when you see that happen in Scripture. Typically, that means everybody's going to be blessed or everyone's going to die. In this case, it was the latter. And even though the priest makes a very sensible defense, he says, why wouldn't I trust David? He was, he was the head of your bodyguards. He was the most trusted man in the land. Everyone loved David. That didn't work for Saul. And so Saul, in a rage of madness, commands his guards to strike down the priest of the Lord, and they all refuse to do it. 
But Doeg the Edomite sees that this is his opportunity to take power and to gain leadership and influence with this evil king. And so he steps forward. He strikes down Ahimelech the priest and 85 other priests. But he doesn't stop there. He takes men with him and he goes to Nob and he strikes down every beast, every animal, every female, every child, and every baby. He annihilates everyone. There's only one son of a of Ahimelech. His name is Abiathar, and he escapes to David to tell him of this horrendous massacre. It's a it's a sordid affair. It's amazing to go back and and read Saul's story of how Saul had been disobedient to the Lord because the Lord had called for Saul to strike out in a holy war against an evil people, and Saul had refused to do it. And now we see a Gentile who has taken on a holy war against God's own priest, and Saul believes that the Lord is still blessing him. We look as we continue and we see the second lesson that we learn from the wilderness. And it's this. God will sustain us through His Word. God will sustain us through His Word. Look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. A leader with real character who is following after God doesn't make it all about themselves. And I love this about David, that even while David is in fear for his life, he is willing to go and to rescue his people from the Philistines. But make no mistake about it, this is not careless zeal or personal bravery because we have to be very careful when we read passages like this. Oftentimes we will react as Christians and we will, we will take off with with our own personal bravery, which is oftentimes just careless zeal. Now, remember David's story. Previously, the prophet Gad had instructed David. He'd received instructions from the Lord, and he said, stop hiding in this cave, return to Judah. That would have made no sense to David, but David responded in obedience. And now we see that David, fearful for his countrymen, whose economy is being ruined by the Philistines, David again appeals first to God whether he should go and attack the Philistines and protect his people. Seems like it's a no-brainer, but David appeals to God. And we see a sudden shift in David's life. It's a change of heart in which no longer is David relying upon himself, his own cunning deception, but he's living by God's Word. In all the ups and downs. You want to know what's so interesting about David's life? We see some of the greatest fruit in David's life from this particular portion of his story. 
in which he begins to live by God's word, to be sustained by God's word. He would go on to write Psalms. We think he wrote Psalm 119. We're not certain. The writer of Psalm 119 would speak of God's word and say, as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. David wrote, that was Psalm 119. David wrote Psalm 19, we're certain of. He would describe God's word as being sweeter than honey. He would go on to say it's better than money, better than gold. What a different mindset than the shame and legalism that often fuel our study of the word of God. How often is your study of God's word fueled by shame? What you ought to do. Good Christians are people who wake up early in the morning and read their Bibles. I know I should do that. I should do my community Bible reading journal. We, we all spent $10 on those at the first of the year. And, and I should read so that when I show up at my coffee group, I have something to talk about. Those are the things I should do. How often is our understanding of the Word of God fueled by shame and guilt? I know I am. The guilt of, of that sense that that works righteousness, it just continues to like creep up in my heart. I gotta be honest, I just feel like God's with me more on the days when I've read his word. And when the days when, you know, I haven't been in the word, I, I have that works righteousness that's creeping up in my heart. It's like, yeah, this is probably why things are going bad today. Like how silly of us to believe that we could earn God's grace. But we see David, and David has an understanding of the word of God that's so much deeper than a quiet time. In no way am I saying that we shouldn't think of reading God's word as a means of grace or, or a spiritual discipline. If we don't start there, we'll likely never move further. But David had moved so much further than a quiet time. God, David thought of God's word as literally the word that brought sustenance to his life, that God was his sustainer. That through the word of God that he found joy. That he realized that there was no created being or thing that could bring the kind of joy that he would find through the word of God. A living, breathing relationship with God. In which he's listening day and night. He's living dependently. And he's seeing God as his guide. As his joy as his companion, and as his friend. Oh, that we would have that kind of focus, that kind of relationship, that kind of joy that comes in knowing God, and in following God, and hearing from God. I think that for most of us, we don't really expect God to speak. We don't really expect to have a kind of continuous prayer relationship with God throughout the day in which we're just talking to him like we're talking to a friend and that we expect that he would speak back to us, not audibly, but that he would guide us and direct us. This last week, God reminded me through a stranger how he wants to speak to us. God got my attention Thursday morning. I had miscommunicated to my coffee group, and um, so they didn't know we were having a group, and they didn't show up. So I find myself at Starbucks on Sycamore View at, at 6 a.m., and I'm all alone, so I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, jump in. And So I'm working on this sermon, and I've got all these commentaries stacked up, all these books I'm studying, 
And a stranger walks by. I'm a couple, two, three hours in. <clears throat> a stranger walks by. And he says, um, where are you studying in First Samuel? And I said, I'm always blown away when anyone wants to know that I'm studying the Bible. Much less he had read the commentaries and said, where are you studying in First Samuel? I said, chapters 22 and 23, when David is fleeing from Saul. He said, you know, it's interesting. Never seen this guy before. He said, you know, it's interesting. The writers say that Saul sinned against God three times. And he named those, this time, this time, this time. He said, but if you look, he said, I think it's chapter 17. I can't quite remember. But when Jonathan goes up against the Philistines, and Jonathan takes his armor bearer with him, and he says, maybe the Lord might be on our side. And this is incredible. It is an incredible story. If you don't know it, you need to go back and read it. It's like a brave heart kind of story. And Jonathan goes up. And the Lord just is with Jonathan, and he strikes the Philistines, and there's just bedlam amongst the camp. And while all that's taking place, Saul's trying to figure out what's going on, and he's numbering his men. And he calls for the priest to come. And in the midst of all the bedlam and the chaos, he looks at the priest, and he says, and he's asking the priest that the priest would seek the Lord on his behalf to determine what he should do. And he, and he says to the priest, withdraw your hand. As if to say, stop seeking the Lord. And he turns his attention to the Philistines. And he gathers his army and he takes off. And the guy says, just check out that passage. And he turns around and he leaves. Now he said chapter 17. And I'm sitting there. And I have my hand on 1 Samuel 14. Because I had just... Read about Ahijah. I'm telling you, there's all these guys. There's Ahijah, there's Abiathar. I can't keep up with them. And he says, I think it's chapter 17. And I look down and I'm like, no, it's the exact page I'm on. It's chapter 14. Here it is right here. 1 Samuel 14. And I read verse 19. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And I go, God, this is weird. I'm not a charismatic. But this stranger just walked up to me and told me to look at a passage of Scripture where I had my hand and I was already studying. And then he walked around, He left by saying, why don't you look at that text and walked away. And I look at this and I'm saying, God, what are you trying to teach me? And I believe that in the same way that Saul so oftentimes said, let me seek the Lord for my own purposes. Let me seek the Lord so I can know what to do for my own benefit. But when it wasn't convenient for him, he said, draw your hand away. I'll go figure it out on my own. How often am I, as a follower of Jesus, come to the Lord and I say, Lord, what should I do? And I'm really just seeking the Lord for my own benefit, not for His. And how often do I get distracted? And how often do I lose focus? And how often am I disobedient? And how often do I say, no, this is taking too long. Withdraw your hand. I'll go figure it out on my own. It's exactly what Saul did. It's very convicted. God will sustain us through His Word, but He'll only sustain us through His Word if we seek Him in His Word and actually believe that He will speak to us. 
I'm convinced that God, that we as a people will not experience renewal in our lives. We will not experience the power and the presence of the living God in our day to day until we begin to locate God through his word. Through his word. This is the way that God has spoken to his church throughout centuries. Through his word. It's the primary means that the Holy Spirit has used to direct us and to sustain us. And God, David, is sustained through the word of God. The final point that we learn in the wilderness is that God is faithful to send us fellow believers. God is faithful to send us fellow believers. Look and be encouraged in verses 15 through 18. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Zith, of Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. We can read that real simply and say, well, wasn't that sweet? Think about the context. Jonathan took the initiative. He had to seek David out. Saul and everyone under his authority was unable to find David. But Jonathan was willing to to strap a backpack on his back, to take the resources, the food and the water that was needed, and to hike out into the middle of the wilderness in the hill country and to do whatever it took to find his friend David. And when he got there and he found David, he was sensitive to David's needs. He heard David say that he was fearful And Jonathan encouraged David in the Lord. He enabled David to persevere even in the midst of his fear. And I think we oftentimes underestimate our own lives as believers what it looks like. I think we underestimate the power of one life that is submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit. What would have happened to David at this low point in his life if Jonathan had not gone to him? I think we oftentimes forget that God desires to use us in powerful ways. But this oftentimes involves our obedience in following God into the wilderness, just like Jonathan did. Our willingness to put our lives on the line. Our willingness to suffer on Jesus' behalf. Let me end with this. We know that suffering is The way of the Christian life because Jesus modeled it for us. Jesus walked into our wilderness on our behalf and he died on the cross for our sins. And the disciples still didn't understand the aspect of his suffering and neither do we. Remember in Luke in chapter 26 when a couple disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus And they begin to share. They don't recognize Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And they begin to share with him their disappointment and all the things that had taken place in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things? What was the reason why they didn't recognize Jesus while Jesus was here on earth? Why didn't they recognize him as Messiah? They weren't willing to enter into his suffering. 
They didn't want to believe that the Messiah would have to suffer. And what did Jesus say? He said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. That means Jesus gave them an Old Testament history lesson. And he took them through all the prophets, the historical prophets, all the prophets in all the Old Testament, and he showed them the ways in which he would have to suffer. I think he probably brought them to this text in 1 Samuel. I think he probably showed them the way in which Israel's former and greatest king David had experienced suffering and how there would be a descendant of that great king who would as Genesis 3.15 speaks of the snake striking his heel, and this one would then crush his head. And now he, Jesus, was that greater king who would save God's people and crush the head of the serpent. And through his suffering and through his wilderness experience on the cross, he would bring salvation to all who have faith in him. It was through his suffering that we would find faith. Jesus is our greatest friend. And God has sent him into our wilderness, into our wilderness, on a rescue mission to bring us, not simply out of the wilderness, but to sustain us even in the wilderness and to bring us to God. The one who has promised he will not abandon us, he will sustain us through his word, And he is faithful to send us fellow believers, even Jesus. Thanks be to God for our best friend, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this encouraging, encouraging text that reminds us that you sustain us in our wilderness, that you are with us even in our suffering, that you haven't abandoned us, that you haven't forsaken us even when we've forsaken you, that you will speak to us through your word, and God, that you have sent us Jesus, our best friend. I pray for those who are here today who don't see Jesus as a friend of sinners. I pray for those who are here today who feel as if um, they've been given a stiff arm or as if there's some sin that they've committed that's just too great and too deep. God, I pray that they would see that that's just their pride. I pray that in humility that they would fall down on their knees. They would turn to you, Jesus, as their Savior and as their Lord. God, thank you that you sustain us through the hardest parts of our lives. Would you help us? Would you grow us? Would you train us up just like you train David's men to be mighty men and women and children of God? Mighty men and women of children who are quick to listen to your voice, who know that you sustain us, that you provide for us, that you give us joy, and that you, Jesus, are our greatest friend. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.